0: In our first series, we looked at endocrine disruptors. These are the chemicals that can disrupt our hormones. Because they've been shown to affect fertility in animal populations, one of the charges laid at their door is that they're also affecting fertility in humans. No less of an authority than environmental activist Erin Brockovich recently argued that hormone-disrupting chemicals were causing shrunken testicles and plummeting sperm counts, potentially spelling the end for humankind. Certainly, there are some troubling statistics. The birth rate is falling in many countries, and according to the NHS, one in seven couples have some kind of trouble conceiving. So what is causing this decline? Is it really down to rogue chemicals wreaking havoc with our hormones? And how worried should we be? I'm Georgia Mills, and in this episode of Hormones, the Inside Story, we're finding out if there really is a fertility crisis, who it's really affecting, and what we might be able to do about it.
1: So for women... I think the, it's clear that there's a falling birth rate.
0: This is reproductive endocrinologist Channa Jayasena from Imperial College London.
1: But worldwide, that's predominantly due to understandable and welcomed changes in social behaviour, such as increased participation in the workforce, improved provision of education.
0: Even as an expert on baby-making hormones, he'd be one of the first to agree that it's not necessarily hormones that are to blame. Once countries reach a certain point of widespread education and healthcare, there's an almost universal fall in birth rate. This is partly because there's a much lower child death rate. And more broadly, there are also changing gender roles and attitudes towards women in society, meaning that motherhood is not the only option, or it's being put off until later in life.
1: And what that's done is, in the UK, resulted in the average age of first motherhood rising above 30 in the UK for the first time. And what that means is that because we're all less fertile when we're 30 or 40 than when we're 20, then clearly we'll be having less, less children overall and there will be more infertility around.
0: But as the song says, it takes two. Making babies is a two-player game and female fertility is not the only issue here.
1: Now, for men, it's a very different story. And there does seem to be objective evidence that over the last 40 years... Sperm counts have dropped remarkably, more than, more than 50% in North America and Europe.
0: We'll come back a bit later as to the reasons why fertility could be falling. But before that, I think it's time to go back to basics with some birds and the bees.
2: Hi Georgia, I'm Dr Simon Rice and I'm a reader in reproductive physiology at St George's University of London.
0: The biological act of baby making starts when an egg and sperm first meet. And I'm showing
2: you here my um, little knitted ovary that I've got, crocheted ovary connected to its fallopian tubes and the uterus and the cervix. So really, actually, when you think about fertility in a woman, you can't just think about the eggs produced here in this ovary. You've got to think about, are these tubes able to transport the egg all the way down? And are is sperm able to travel up this tube to meet? egg because fertilization occurs here and in this tube and then the fertilized egg known as an embryo will travel down and obviously the lining of the womb here has to be receptive has to be at the right stage and thickness to receive that egg and beforehand The cervix itself here has to be able to allow the sperm to travel up and not kind of be a hostile environment for the sperm. So really, when we think about the whole of our fertility, it's this whole system has to integrate together.
0: Wow, I'm looking, I love the crocheted ovaries. They're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It's so cute, isn't it? (laughs) But looking at them, it's, it's a, the sperms have a quite a long way to go, don't they? They're not oh, very big. Oh, massive,
2: massive journey. I think um, some people have calculated it and in, in some like thousands of miles. And, it's, and this is why we produce millions and millions of sperm, because, again, it's survival of the fittest who can make that journey and reach the prize of fertilising the egg.
0: While there are multitudes of sperm whose main job is to be as quick as possible, the egg is bigger with more resources packed into it and there's usually only one released each month. But these eggs are made very early on.
2: So really, if you ovulated an egg this month, that egg would have been laid down when you were a baby in your mum's womb.
0: I guess that brings us to the idea that we have a finite reserve. We're not making new ones as we go, and they're tick, tick, ticking away.
2: Exactly. So unlike sperm, which can be made ad infinitum so to speak though of course there are challenges now with older fathers so to speak but yes for women we have this finite fertility which is determined by this ovarian reserve so once we're born and once puberty is established we're losing follicles all the time naturally by what we call atresia which is just this process of cell death so the cells the egg follicles will naturally die some will start growing and then die off and then Some will grow and make it into the menstrual cycle. And then we will, of course, lose follicles through your menstrual cycle. We estimate that we only have about 400 cycles. So you'll ovulate only 400 eggs out of those half a million or a million that you are born with. And of course, once you've depleted all those follicles, we enter into menopause. So you can see that your age when you would menopause and also your fertility potential is determined by that ovarian reserve.
0: So I'm in my early 30s, I'm child-free, and like many people, I'm getting a bit sick of hearing that female fertility is falling off a cliff by the age of 35. So how much of this is just biological reality and how much of it is scare stories?
2: So it's a very, very complex question. So first of all, your ovarian reserve will be determined by many things, but it's your age, your genetics, and we begin meaning to be aware of various environmental factors but thinking about the cliff so now there's no doubt that we lose primordial follicles as i said throughout is that cliff face as steep as it is i for me personally i think of it as more of a gradual decline rather than a steep drop off but the, the issue is that the gradient of this decline can vary from woman to woman because the ovarian reserve will greatly vary from woman to woman. Part of my research project, I used to collect um, tiny biopsies from the cortex, the outer edge of the ovary when women were having elective caesarean sections. And all the primordial follicles are in this outer edge. And then we would be able to do research on this and one of the things I was doing was counting the amount of follicles and doing some modeling and it was really interesting that in the women who were in the 30 to 39 bracket, age bracket, some of them would have their number and stages of follicles like a woman in her 20s and some would be like women in their 40s.
0: There are a few things we know that can affect egg stores, including exposure to certain chemicals, like the ones found in cigarette smoke. But there can be hormonal conditions too.
2: So polycystic ovary syndrome is the most common endocrine disorder and affecting women of reproductive age. And it's been a very long journey to get it first diagnosed properly and for a consensus on the diagnosis and I think some of the problem also comes from the name unfortunately named polycystic because they're no cysts, they are actually just the big follicles that have stopped growing. And many things can affect these. We know what is disordered is that they have excess androgens. So the male hormone androgens are produced from the ovary in excess, which can, of course, then result in a lot of other issues that women with um, PCOS have. They get a lot of male pattern baldness. They can get excess hair on the contrary side. They can get a lot of acne. And that's all caused from these excess androgens. If you become obese, or if you become insulin resistant to get prediabetes, that can again all affect the growth of the follicles. There is a disorder also of those hormones that control follicle growth called the gonadotrophins. So it's very multifaceted and multi-complex. And part of the problem is that it can manifest in teenage years, but often it's not picked up by GPs. You know, things can be done, so you can um, maintain your weight and exercise. But for women who have PCOS, it's often harder than women who have normal ovaries because the way the um, whole metabolism and the biology is, is they're more prone to gain weight. So they're kind of fighting a really hard battle.
0: PCOS is estimated to affect one in ten women in the UK. And apart from some links with genetics and obesity, we're not that close to finding out what actually causes it. So that's the eggs. But what about the sperm?
3: So when it comes to sperm, nature has a few surprises for us. If you take the sperm of an elephant and you compare it to that of a mouse, you'll see that the elephant sperm is much, much, much smaller than that of the mouse. But perhaps even more surprisingly is if you take the sperm of a fruit fly and you stretch that sperm out to its full length, you'll find that that sperm is actually five centimetres in length, which compared to the size of a fruit fly itself is somewhat remarkable.
0: This is Rod Mitchell. He's Professor of Developmental Endocrinology at the Centre for Reproductive Health in the University of Edinburgh. So my main
3: interest is in fertility in males and particularly focused on the development of the testicles in males and how things that might go wrong or impact on that development in early life, either fetal or during childhood, can then determine what happens for that individual when they become an adult male. So it's, it's really uh, developmental issues on Reproductive function
0: and um, you say you say you 're interested in male fertility. are female fertility and male fertility uh, I was about to say bedfellows, but that 's probably the wrong turn of phrase. I mean are they completely different fields? Is there any common ground between the two
3: so the hormones that drive male and female reproductive function are essentially largely the same they don 't always do the same things in males as they do in females, and I think you know there are other similarities between reproductive function, but at the same time, there are major, major differences. I think when it comes to male fertility, I think we are now coming to a general consensus that there is a reduction in male fertility. And here we're talking about really sperm counts uh, in, in adult males. And, and whilst there are still some people who would disagree with that, I think the main question we're facing now is actually to what degree is this decline? And probably equally as importantly, where are we headed with this? So is this going to be something that is going to continue? And are we going to start to see more and more harmful effects of this uh, over time?
0: One expert in the field, Shana Swan, wrote a book called Countdown, in which she underlined the worrying trends of declining sperm counts. Are we approaching a world devoid of sperm?
3: The, The book largely talks about that if we continue our trajectory in declining sperm counts then we'll end up with sperm counts of zero uh, by somewhere in the region, I think it was around about 2045. And the question really is, is that what will happen in reality or will there be some kind of, if you like, almost compensation for this reduction in sperm counts that will, that will allow us to retain and maintain fertility over the long term? And, and I think that, that, that is a good question. So I, I'm I'm not convinced that we are facing Armageddon when it comes to sperm counts, but I do believe that there is is a reduction in sperm counts and I do believe that it's something that we need to be aware of, look into the reasons why and also think about how we can do something about it.
0: Just before we get into why this might be happening, why is sperm decline a problem in fertility because the one thing most people know about sperm is that there are lots and lots of them to begin with.
3: Yeah, so so when when we when we look at sperm counts, essentially we know that there are millions of sperm in an ejaculate. And we know also that once you reach a certain level of sperm, that anything above that doesn't necessarily increase your fertility. So there is a kind of uh, a critical threshold where once you fall below that, then the risk of infertility increases quite substantially. So it's really ensuring that we maintain sperm counts above that threshold to know that we will have, uh, if you like, normal fertility. And if we drag everybody down and we start to reach that threshold on on a more regular basis, then that's when we're starting to see the major issues.
0: Although only adult males make sperm... These problems with fertility actually can stem much further back in life.
3: We're now starting to understand that that it may well be development of the testicle right from the very early stages, so right from fetal life, that can be potentially impacting on on that adult's future reproductive function, and this is something that that's become more widely recognised over the last sort of twenty to thirty years or so knowing exactly what those causes are is more difficult. And so what we think is that we think that that this is very much likely to be environmental and lifestyle factors that are behind it. That would make sense in terms of things happening over a relatively short period of time, i.e. decades. But what are those environmental and lifestyle factors And how can we actually prove that these are the things that might be be affecting fertility? And and that's a big question, I think, for the field at the moment.
0: Do, Do we have any likely candidates?
3: The common things that you will hear talked about are certainly lifestyle factors. So obesity, smoking, alcohol, these types of things. These are very commonly spoken about in relation to how they might impact on fertility. And the other big group of... Uh, factors that that people look at are what we now see in our industrialized world. So we're talking about here chemicals, particularly synthetic man-made chemicals that might be interfering with hormone development, either during fetal life or as development progresses. And you'll hear many factors talked about. So for example, plastic, it's not that infrequently that you'll open up a newspaper read an article online about bisphenol A or phthalates these types of chemicals and whether they're associated with with fertility issues so these are really the main factors that people propose but what we're starting to recognize now is that perhaps it's not just things that we're exposed to at very low levels like these uh, these chemicals but actually maybe even medications or pharmaceuticals that individuals
0: are taking that might be affecting fertility. It's not going to be easy to unpick all the elements of the chemical soup that surrounds us to discover which of them might be impacting our fertility.
3: There are so many different chemicals we you know we are exposed to thousands and thousands of chemicals all the time. All of the chemicals will have their own specific combination of actions, some of them will overlap, some of them will be specific, and they might not actually be always hormone pathways that they're affecting. they can affect other types of signaling mechanisms I don't think it's a case of uh, one particular mechanism or hormone that it is affected by all these different things, I think it's actually could be uh, or, or is likely to be a, a variety of different uh, mechanisms.
0: If we do find out blank is causing this problem, you mentioned that it's very likely to be problems in development that are causing these, these problems in fertility later in life. So does that mean that we've got a bit of a, a lag in sort of any solution we can come up with? It might be sort of 18 to 25 years before we start to see an improvement.
3: Yeah, I think that probably is one of the difficulties. If this is a developmental thing, then you do have maybe 15 to 20 years from an exposure to an outcome in terms of fertility. And trying to do studies means that you have to be monitoring potentially pregnant women and then following up those children for a long period of time. That's a hard thing to do for for a clinical study.
0: So there is a problem and it doesn't seem like it's an easy fix. And while we wait for the studies to come in, is there anything we can actually do? Channa Jayasena again.
1: Well, short of you know the really important climate change and environmental lobby and factors that we all know about in society that I think need to change, there is a lack of treatments that we have so for example we know that that pollution can provoke asthma but we have excellent treatments for asthma and I'm not saying it's the solution but for people who've already been affected then we currently have a situation whereby there is absolutely no approved drug or treatment for a low sperm count. So a low sperm count is one of the most common reasons for a couple not being able to have a baby naturally and yet there is no drug to treat it. And that's either because it doesn't exist or will never exist or more likely that we just haven't invested enough time to look into those. So, you know, at, at where I work, what, that's one of the things we're trying to do. We're trying to discover this tranche of drugs that can help us to complement changes in policy, which are really important, to also help the people who have already been affected.
0: And something else that might help is reevaluating how we view and talk about fertility. It's so often seen as a woman's worry and this framing alongside stigma has really held up research.
1: It's it's really unfair and I think if you look at society, you know, women have always been blamed and given um, the responsibility of starting a family, whereas clearly it takes both partners and what we have at the moment is a perfect storm where it's the male in facility that's particularly suffering And we know very little about it because we have ignored it. We haven't done enough research into it. And it's difficult to do because historically there's been a stigma associated. That's changing, uh, but it will take time for us to develop the same level of treatments and support for men as we do have for women.
0: And this problem in general is really worth fixing. And this goes for whether you want children or not.
3: It points to potentially more wider issues. So we certainly know that fertility, sperm counts, hormone production, reproductive hormone production are also associated with other health problems. So it might be that even if you're not concerned particularly about this from a fertility perspective, it might be pointing to general other health issues that we're facing today and and, and, and that might be considered perhaps by some as more serious. So I think it could be uh, very much a warning to us, if you like, the canary in the coal mine almost, as you often hear about.
0: So is spermageddon really approaching? Some people definitely think so, while others are more optimistic about the future of humanity's baby-making abilities. And we can pin some of the decline in global birth on changing societies and personal choices, but there are other things going on too. Again, we return to the problem we discovered back in series one, that endocrine-disrupting chemicals are everywhere, and the complex interplay between our hormones, our fertility and the wider environment means that it's not going to be easy to fully understand the problem and then even do anything about it. Even so, the lessons from the past and the discovery of the impact of endocrine disruptors on wildlife tells us this is definitely something that researchers should be keeping a close eye on. Thank you so much to my guests, Channa Jayasena, Suman Rice and Rod Mitchell. Next time is the last episode of the series, but we're hopefully ending on a high note with a look at the science of happiness.
2: <laughs> I think, uh, you know, just a, a quick glance on the internet, if you put in happiness and hormones, you, you end up with a whole lot of obviously commercial websites trying to sell you various sort of supplements of, of different
1: sorts.
0: You and Your Hormones is a podcast from the Society for Endocrinology. Explore more about the world of hormones at yourhormones.info. Follow them on Twitter, that's at soc underscore endo, and you can find them online at endocrinology.org. The show was produced by me, Georgia Mills. Katani is the executive producer, and it was made by First Create the Media. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.